0: Hi, you're listening to another sermon from Deep Creek Anglican Church. Good morning, everyone. For those of you who haven't met me, my name's Phil. I'm the husband of Megan, who you saw before. The title of the sermon today, A Win-Win Situation. And a win-win situation is when there are two parties that benefit Yesterday, we saw a great example of a win-lose situation. Not just a win-lose, but a terribly lose. You can kind of imagine a grand final that could be almost a win-win situation when um, it's a really good match, like a really close match, and everyone can feel kind of proud that their team worked hard and did their best. But uh, sadly, no, not yesterday. That was just, uh, yeah, a terribly lose situation. If you've been following along in our series uh, on the letter to the Corinthians, you'll know that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, and he had spent some time in the city of Corinth and founded a church there. After about a year and a half, he moved on, and some problems started to arise in the church after that. So he wrote this letter to address those problems and um, the issues that he'd heard about, and he'd also to answer some questions that the church had specifically written to him about. And the issues and problems they were having really revolved around, how do we live in this world now that we're followers of Jesus Christ? They'd heard the gospel and they'd received the Holy Spirit, and it had radically changed their hearts and their view of the world. But what did that mean for their day-to-day lives, for how they interacted with their culture and um, their previous kind of habits and practices? In a way, they thought they had found a win-win situation. They'd been saved. They were set free. They had this great new life in Jesus. And they also thought that they could do whatever they wanted without having to worry. They felt like it was a real win-win. But it's not really a win-win if it's two wins for you. It's a win-win when there's two parties that benefit. And that was not happening. Their win-win, the way they were living their lives, was negatively affecting others. So Paul had a different win-win scenario in mind as he addresses uh, this issue of how they should live as Christians. The Corinthians knew that in Christ they'd been set free from the Jewish laws and the traditions. They were set free from the superstitions and expectations of their culture. And they seemed to think they could do pretty much whatever they wanted and it would all be fine because of God's amazing grace And of course, Paul responded to them and said, yes, we have been set free from all these things, but it's not a free-for-all now. What we do with our bodies and what we do with our lives still really matters because of the gospel. The thing that set them free in the first place, the gospel, was now meant to be the guiding principle on how they use their freedom going forward. Now, we've heard in the previous weeks about how the gospel changes our views on things. Um, It changes our views on leaders in the church, on division and disagreements. Uh, We've heard how it changes our view on sex. And last week, Ben spoke how it changes our view on food and drink, particularly in relation to idols. So in this chapter, when Paul starts talking about his apostleship and whether people should give him money or not for his ministry work, it may seem like a bit of a departure From this ongoing theme. But I want to say today that it's not actually a departure. He's actually continuing right along with that very same theme and is really using himself and his life as an example of that. But in order for this example to make sense to the people at Corinth, he really needs to first establish the fact that he is an apostle and then show how his life and the practices and decisions that he makes are drastically different Because of the gospel. Because Paul did have people who had set themselves up against him. He had haters. There were people who didn't believe that he was an apostle. Now, there are different definitions, but in this context, an apostle is someone who has seen and spoken to the risen Lord Jesus after his death and received a mission. So Paul was different to the other apostles. He wasn't one of the original 12. But Jesus had appeared to him in a special way on the road to Damascus and given him the mission of preaching the gospel to non-Jewish people. But because he wasn't one of the original twelve, some people tried to convince the church at Corinth that he wasn't an apostle at all. So that's why at the start of this chapter, he focuses on defending his apostleship. The fact that he founded the Corinthian church uh, should have been enough evidence on its own for them because that's the, the resolution of his ministry. And it says in verse 2, You are the seal of my apostleship. Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. The seal on a letter is the thing that proves its authenticity. You know, if you watch those old-fashioned shows with the wax seal and the stamp in it, that's what proves um, the authenticity of the letter. So he spends a little bit of time talking about that and defending his apostleship. And then he moves on to showing from many different perspectives why ministers and apostles and people who do gospel work should be paid from that work. He does this with a lot of different arguments from the Old Testament, from natural principles like not muzzling the ox while it treads out the grain. Uh, he, He references the teaching of Jesus and he makes a very compelling argument that it's right and good for ministers to be paid. He doesn't mention anything about the husband of ministers doing guest sermons, though. So I guess that means I'm doing this for free. Is that right? Not even like a bottle of wine or a box of chocolates or something? No? Okay. Fair enough. But after putting all this effort into proving that he was an apostle and that apostles and ministers should be paid. He then says that he personally hasn't and won't won't accept any money for his gospel work. He gets quite dramatic about it. He says, I would rather die than take money. And it's clear from what he says that other apostles had received payments, gifts from churches of support. But for him, he would rather never be paid than to put any obstacle in the way of the gospel being preached. In verse 12 it says, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. And the word he uses here and is translated hinder is only used one time in the Bible and it has this meaning of a road that's been damaged or cut up to make it difficult for traffic to pass along it. He wants the gospel to have a really smooth path as it goes out to the people that he ministers to, nothing to derail it or delay it or cause it to not get where it needs to be. And Paul wasn't trying to set a precedent here. He wasn't trying to say that this is what all ministers should do. In fact, it's quite the opposite. You can see how hard he worked, so many different levels of um, argument to, um, to set up this idea. It's a very clear directive that ministers should be paid. So he's not trying to say everyone should be like him and, and not take any money. But it was because of his special position and circumstances and his ministry as a missionary. That he didn't want to take any chances with the idea of money causing trouble for the advancement of the gospel. So you can see that this kind of similar theme that we've talked about in previous chapters is uh, continuing here, and it's starting to come out in this example of Paul's life. He's starting to realize that he's not—we're well, starting to realize—he's not changing topics, but moving into a really strong personal example of that theme whilst at the same time making sure to reinforce that it is just a personal example and not a precedent for all ministers to follow. In Paul's day, there were people who went around like buskers almost, preaching about religion. They would speak on the street and people would give them money or they would get paid to come to people's houses and gatherings to speak. And Paul's not speaking about the gospel to make money, to make a living. He's speaking about the gospel because it's the most important truth to him. He says uh, that he is compelled to speak the gospel. I think it's very relevant to stop and to think about the effect of money and the gospel as there is plenty of uh, talk in our society about money and religion and it can turn people away from the church. Things do get difficult and complicated when money is involved. It would certainly be um, a lot less stressful if uh, churches didn't even have to think about money at all. But from the outside, some people see the idea of tithing, for example, very negatively. They think that churches pressure people into giving. Uh, They have a perception that churches are rich and greedy. Uh, Most churches aren't very rich, but some might be. Um, So if they, for example, if someone comes to church and tithing isn't explained, it can be quite a confronting experience that turns them off to be asked for money on their first visit. There are also churches who put a lot of emphasis on giving to the church, and this can seem at odds with what people know of Jesus uh, and can be perceived as hypocritical. There's um example if the pastor of a megachurch is paid a super high salary whilst at the same time um, asking poorer congregation members to give more and more, people outside the church don't really understand how to reconcile that with what they know of Jesus and his love for the poor. At the moment, the church's tax-free status is being attacked by certain political parties, and we're a not-for-profit organization. Along with other not-for-profits, we could say we have the right to be tax-free, but is it worth these things if it hinders the gospel and gives people an opportunity to portray the church in a bad light? These are things we need to think about. I'm not giving you my opinion on them, just saying it's something we need to think about in light of the gospel, There are issues around money in the church. We need to approach them with an attitude of humility and think about what we can do to change for the sake of the gospel. Sometimes Christians can be very good at getting defensive. We might say, it's our right to defend our ways and make sure people don't say things about us. It's our right to say what we think about what's happening in society. Um, But as we do that, I'm not saying we shouldn't, but as we do that, I'd encourage us to consider, are we really prioritizing the gospel in the way we speak and in our actions? Does being defensive and demanding our rights hinder the gospel? And This is exactly what Paul's talking about. It's hard to give up your rights, but we need to understand how that relates to the gospel. And for me, this is what the letter of 1 Corinthians is all about. It's about looking at every problem and every part of life through the perspective of the gospel. Is it for the sake of the gospel? And that's because the gospel is of paramount importance. The gospel is not just something that brings you to Christ at the start of your Christian journey. It's something that continues to shape every part of your entire life and even your death. We don't graduate from the gospel. It continues to be the linchpin that holds everything together in our faith. We need to keep hearing the gospel as well and sharing about the difference it makes in people's lives because that's what helps to strengthen our faith and encourage us. If you're new to this whole church thing and you're wondering what the gospel is, I want to take a minute to kind of talk through it because the way our culture is headed, I think it's becoming even harder to communicate the gospel and harder for people to understand its importance and relevance to them in modern society. The gospel... Is the story of the one true God's never-ending, never-failing, enduring love for his people. God brought this universe into existence, and people like you and me exist for the purpose of being his friends, of being his children, of having a relationship with him. We're created in his image, and we are a reflection of him. We're valued and loved by him with no exceptions at all. As humans, we often become misled into thinking that I, as an individual, am at the centre of the universe, that my needs and wants, my freedoms, my rights are the most important thing. And the context in which we understand the universe, which you could say is our worldview, starts to flip from being a God-centric view to being a me-centric view, and inevitably that turns us away from God and our relationship with him to focusing on ourselves and what we want. Not only does this hurt God and damage our relationship with him, but in doing this we inevitably hurt other people and out of that we hurt ourselves as well. For me, this is one way you can think about the idea behind that often misunderstood word sin. Sin is not doing something naughty but fun like eating ice cream covered in chocolate, although those new Cadbury dairy milk ice creams do look devilishly good I'm just thinking about them it's going to be distracting you'll know you like them I thought it was a great tagline anyway sorry Uh, sin is turning away from God and putting yourself on the throne at the center of the universe And then humans, we don't like to feel bad, we don't like to feel guilt, we don't like to feel shame, so we find ways of distracting ourselves or of justifying it, and we become entangled in this cycle of self-deception and self-centeredness. We become deceived, we have that inside-out world view. The Bible talks about this as being slaves to sin. We're selfish and we hurt others. We don't want to feel bad about it, so we justify it or pretend it didn't happen, and the cycle kind of continues as we deceive ourselves. And this is what the death of Jesus Christ sets us free from. Jesus gave up his freedom and his rights and came to live as a human. In a human body, he suffered, he died, and he did it for us to show us the extent he was willing to go to in his love for us. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus restores us in our relationship to God. He sets our worldview back to right, and he gives us his Holy Spirit. He frees us from those entanglements, and he sets the universe right again with God at the center. And as our relationship with God is healed, we also start to find that we heal from the way that we have hurt ourselves in the way we've acted. And our relationships with other people and the hurt we've caused them can also start to heal. And this can be a long process, but it begins when we turn to Jesus and call to him for help. If you want to be set free from these entanglements of sin, of having yourself at the centre of your universe, then don't leave church today without speaking to someone about it. There are plenty of people here who'd love to talk and pray with you, um... You can come and speak to me after the service or Megan. Um, we'd love to speak with you and pray with you. The reason, though, we need to look at all of life through the perspective of the gospel is because the gospel, this good news about Jesus, is the only thing that can truly change the world. Because it's the only thing that truly changes people, changes people's hearts. That is why Paul says he's willing to give up absolutely anything so as not to hinder the gospel. I hope you're starting to feel anew like I have the urgency and the importance of this message that we've been entrusted to share. We were slaves to sin, and the gospel sets us free. That's one win. And through the Holy Spirit, we become full of love for God and for others, and that's another win. We want them also to hear the gospel then, and we use our newfound freedom to become slaves again, the Bible says, <clears throat> but not to sin, but to Christ and to other people, so that they can hear the gospel without hindrance and be set free as well. And that's a win, 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 win. It's us and them winning together. So, what does this idea of making ourselves slaves to other people mean? Uh, in verse 19, it's. Paul says, though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. And then in verse 22 to 23, he says, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some and I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. Some of the examples we know about, if Paul, for example, was staying with people who didn't eat meat, then that was fine. He wouldn't eat meat, so there would be nothing to hinder the gospel. If they didn't drink alcohol, then he wouldn't drink alcohol, so as to not hinder the gospel. If they followed very strict rules and traditions, like the Jewish food laws, for example, then he would also follow them, not because he had to, but because he would choose to do that, so as to not hinder the gospel. He could have expected money for his work, as we talked about, He would have been within his rights to do that, but he said no to that so that people couldn't question his motives for preaching the gospel and thereby undermine the gospel's work. And Paul calls us to this way of living as well. And He's not saying it's going to be easy. The last section of this chapter speaks to that effort that we must put in as we put aside our personal freedoms and rights and as we seek to prioritize the gospel over everything. We might find as we do this, our body might rebel. Our hearts might rebel. They might say, it's not fair. I work hard. I deserve to be able to do what I want with my time and my money my life. And I'm not going to try to tell you what these things might be in your life that you might need to think about. I'll leave that up to you and the Holy Spirit to work through. But if it's something that puts a stumbling block in the way of a young believer or a hindrance, to the gospel, going out to someone who hasn't heard it, then we must think about how we can discipline ourselves, how we can make a change in our lives for the sake of the gospel. And that may mean hardship, but we must bear the hardship for the sake of the gospel because we know that it is the pearl of great price. It's a hidden treasure that was worth selling everything for, it's the most valuable thing there is and the only thing that can change the world and change people. Uh, you might remember Megan's referred to the Isthium Games a few times in this series on Corinthians. They're similar to the Olympic Games. Uh, they took place in Corinth, nearby, around, the, and they were taking place at this time when Paul was writing. And from verse 24, Paul uses this event to communicate the expectation that the gospel life is going to be hard work. The athletes would train really hard for these games. They would give up their right to eat meat, to drink wine, along with a number of other activities. And they would commit time to train for months and months and months in order to compete and to win the prize, which was a crown of celery. (laughs) That was the prize. They spent 10 months training. And they won a crown of celery. You might remember from previous sermons my view on vegetables, particularly in relation to desserts. If you don't, here they are vegetables. (laughs) Vegetables did not belong in desserts, Uh, especially not cakes. Carrot cake, for example, I made it clear I was not impressed by carrot cake. Also, putting raisins in muffins when someone might think they're chocolate chips. That's, that's quite evil, really. In a similar fashion, vegetables seem like a very strange choice for crowns. Now, any kind of head decoration. Um, although celery is probably the most pointless vegetable of all. So why not make it into a crown? It's got no nutritional value, really. Apparently it takes more uh, energy to eat celery than what you get from the celery. So, Pointless. Anyway, sorry, how long do you think a celery crown would last? Like Celery out of the fridge only makes it a few days, really, Um, so it's really not much of a prize, to be honest. I'm sure they got some prestigious feelings and adulation along with it, but um, yeah. We, on the other hand, are not striving to win a celery crown. We're striving to win a crown that lasts forever, not just rots in a couple of days, And this crown that lasts forever is the result of the gospel. It's eternal life with God. If these athletes are willing to put aside their wants and desires, to discipline themselves and control their bodies, to give up their freedoms and rights so as to obtain a crown made of celery, how much more should we be willing to do what it takes to give up what needs to be given up to receive a crown of eternal life for ourselves and for those with whom we share the gospel? Freedom and rights have become so important in our modern culture that they have overshadowed the ultimate importance and the utter desperate need for the gospel. So I encourage you to think about what are are you willing to give up for the sake of the gospel? Perhaps it's those obvious things like money or time. We could give more to support mission and ministry. We could give time to be with those who need to hear the message of the gospel. Both of these things impinge on our rights to enjoy what, you know, we may have worked hard to get. Both of these things can be hard. I had a lot more jokes planned for this talk, but I gave them up to make sure I had time to talk about the gospel. Maybe that counts. What do we need to give up to ensure we're not hindering someone in our life's ability to access the gospel? Perhaps we need to take the first step to fix a relationship, even if it wasn't our fault, so that that hurt between you and that person isn't stopping them from listening to the gospel. Maybe it's pride we need to give up. What are we going to give up to ensure we can share the gospel with the people God brings into our lives, making sure there's nothing that stands in the way? When I imagine the ultimate win-win situation, I, have, I like to have an image in my head sometimes and I imagine standing hand in hand in heaven before God with someone who heard the gospel because of my sacrifice, both having run the race and received crowns that will last forever. It makes it all worthwhile.